Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that's not going to be scared just because somebody's mind has jumped the tracks. Here is the captain. I'm deathly afraid of clowns. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are still sipping on Don't Worry My Mom Said It's Cool Bourbon Barrel Aged Imperial Birthday Cake Stout and it doesn't have to be anybody's birthday to celebrate and drink a few of these but it's 12% ABV so drink these at home in your garage. We put a four and a half bottle caps on this one. Let's give some thanks and praise where it is most certainly due. Right here first up we have a big cheers to Beth in Cleveland, Ohio. And a big We Like Your Chip goes to Melanie in Winfield, West Virginia. Next up, we have a double-fisted cheers to Trish and Nicole in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. And a big shout to Andrew from Oregon. Next, a cheers to Abigail in Milan, Tennessee. We also have Daniela in Astoria, New York. And last but certainly not least, we have Sally in Dorset, United Kingdom. Everyone we just mentioned, they helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run, get you some. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Make sure you're subscribed, and make sure you tell your friends to subscribe. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. we left off yesterday captain is with the accidental or what appears to be an accidental death of ron gillespie driving his truck august 19th 1977 am i saying 100 that there was no foul play involved no i don't think anybody can say that for certain however the evidence shows and stacks up that this does appear to be an accident And if there was anybody else involved, 
the police, the sheriff's department, and BCI could not find any evidence of such. Right, and the police have to rule this an accident based off the evidence. And when people talk about a cover-up, again, what would be their motive? What would be the whole police department and the sheriff and everybody else involved, coroner, everybody else involved, what would be their motive to cover up this accidental death for the superintendent or a bus driver? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that there would be a cover-up. And in regards to Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, I want to point something out here. This name may sound familiar to our longtime listeners because we gave him a shout-out in episode 396 in May of 2020 when Dwight Radcliffe passed away. We gave him a shout-out because Dwight Radcliffe was not only the sheriff of Pickaway County, he was the sheriff from 1965 until 2013. He was the longest-serving sheriff in the entire country, in the United States. And I understand that that does not make him a perfect man nor a perfect sheriff. However, what I see here, Captain, when we reviewed the information is, rather than looking for reasons that this was a cover-up, what I found were reasons that the sheriff's department was looking to prove that there was no foul play to themselves. Right. By sending the gun to BCI, sending the ammunition to BCI. Had there been foul play or had they suspected foul play, they would have followed up on that. Yeah, because they want to solve why these individuals are getting harassed by this letter writer. And again, let's go back through a couple of pieces of, of evidence. His br- blood alcohol level was 0.16. Family is surprised. They go, hey, we're surprised by this because he's not a heavy drinker. Well, if he's not a heavy drinker, then 0.16, he might not be able to operate a vehicle to the best of his ability. Also, not wearing a safety belt. Yes, and to be basically clear. Basically thrown from his truck. Maybe if he's wearing the safety belt, he makes it through the accident. And to be clear, no one should be operating a vehicle with a 0.16 especially here in the state of Ohio, where they've decided 0.08, half of that, is past the legal limit. Mm-hmm. Now, the next stop in our timeline would be 1983, per the Unsolved Mysteries timeline that we reviewed earlier. 1983, in February, is when the attempt is made on Mary Gillespie's life, when she finds the nasty sign that has words and statements so nasty and terrible on it that she has to tear it down. And if the booby trap would have worked, it would have triggered the trigger on that gun and fired a shot in the direction of her and her head as she removed that sign. Mm -hmm. However, that is six years later. That's it's 77. The time of Ron Gillespie's accident. It's 83 with the attempt on Mary Gillespie's life. There is a lot that goes down during that span of time, and we're going to go through that. And this whole time, Captain, that whole time frame, there are letters that are continuing. There are suspicions that are going on in town about who could have tried to kill Ron Gillespie or who was responsible for that truck accident. Who is responsible for these letters, and how long are they going to continue for? Mary Gillespie that has claimed that there is no affair happening, but now her husband has passed away. And the superintendent, he is now going to get a divorce. We could assume 
if he had a nice relationship before these letters, that these letters made his relationship a lot more complicated. Yes, regardless of the dynamics of that relationship, I would guess so. Now, it's the late 70s when Gordon Massey and his wife split up. And at some point, Gordon Massey and Mary Gillespie say, yes, we did have a relationship. Their statement has always been that the relationship started after the letters. A better date for when that relationship started, I don't have for you. It's never been provided as far as I could find, other than the simple statement of, we didn't start up this relationship until after the letters started. So the other statement would be, it would be after Ron Gillespie's passing. Mm -hmm. You can question that as much as you want. I'm fine with it. I think that there's plenty of room for speculation there. That can be a hard thing to believe. I have seen situations like that, witness situations like that in in my own life. So I can believe them. I don't 100% believe them. However, I don't look at this situation and see Mary Gillespie being responsible for Ron's death. And I don't see what others are looking for, whether they say, well, Mary or even Gordon Massey could be sending these letters when the letters started. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Gordon Massey threaten his own career, his own job by sending these letters? They were sent to his boss before they were sent to Mary Gillespie. Mary would be threatening her marriage or threatening her job as well if she were sending the earlier letters. Yeah, and again, it's a small town, so you screw up. It's not just as easy as getting a job somewhere else. You you become a stain on that community. The other person that we mentioned in yesterday's episode, Captain, that was possibly tied or at least suspected to by the Gillespies anyway to be involved in these letters is David Longberry. David Longberry resigned from his position with the Westfall School District as a bus driver He resigned in October of 1981, October 22nd, actually, of 1981. Mm -hmm. This whole time, again, the letters continue. Now, two of the people that have been very central to this story all along are Paul Freshour and his wife, who is also Ron Gillespie's sister, Karen Freshour. To this point, their only involvement in the story, because on our timeline, we've not gotten to the attempted murder yet is that they have been trying to help the Gillespies through their problem, through this issue of receiving these strange and threatening letters. We did say yesterday that the letters, what we do know when they were being mailed, were coming from Columbus, Ohio, from Postal Hub 430. bus. Shout out to my favorite postal carrier in Columbus, Tim Williams, Mr. Speedy Delivery himself. I'm pretty badass on the keyboards as well paul Freshour and his wife karen lived in grove city ohio they were super tight with the gillespies paul worked for budweiser at the anheuser bush plant in columbus ohio he worked there as a quality control officer or agent whatever you want to call them in 1982 him and his wife karen and paul they filed for a divorce It was in early 1983 in February when the attempt is made on Mary Gillespie's life. And I think we should go through that because there's a lot of questions there. And you posed some of those questions yesterday. First off, we need to paint the picture. 
She's still driving her bus route at this point. Mary is. Correct. The sign that she discovers is at the end of the day. Okay, this is not on her morning route. This is in the afternoon. A description of this sign should be as such. It's a nasty sign that she she sees spots and decides she's going to take it down. However, it's rigged to this booby trap, right? It's a very crude booby trap. She doesn't know that, though, at the time. Correct. That's exactly right. But what what does it say anyways? I don't know what the sign says. See, I don't believe there's a sign until people tell me what what it says. So until they tell me what it says, nasty sign. Don't buy it. What do you mean? Don't buy that there was a sign <laughs> or a booby trap. No, I believe there was a booby trap. I don't believe there was this horrible. I mean, there supposedly there was a bunch of signs, and it was there. They were all on this uh, street, but it wasn't a main street, right? No, this was a main street. This was actually not terribly far from the accident site of where Ron Gillespie was killed. Well, what street was it on? I don't have that in my notes. So, but the but but you're also getting the that there was more than one sign. There was no. A, the information I have states that there was one sign. See, what I heard was that there were signs on both sides of the street, multiple, you know, a couple here, a couple there. Like definitely trying to get her attention or anybody's attention that would go down that road. That could be the case. Then the issue then becomes for me, and I think other people will feel this way as well. If the booby trap was intended for Mary Gillespie, the more signs that you put up makes it a little dicey that it's going to hit its intended target. Mm -hmm. The information I have states that it was one sign in a very specific location that she would have passed through. And she would have seen the sign and anybody driving in the area should have seen this sign as well. The way that it's described is that she sees this sign and that the crude booby trap was set up as such that if she pulled the sign out, or I guess anyone for that matter, pulled the sign Mm -hmm. to tear it down, it would pull on a string that would pull the trigger on this gun that is aimed at the person that would be tearing off the sign. However, she doesn't tear off the sign. It's attached to, uh, you know, like a post. She pulls the stake or post out of the ground and then sees the string that is tied to this other stake or post. Right. Takes that down as well. Now, on the second post, we have what's described as a box. Inside the box is where she finds the gun that has the booby trap. Now, there's a couple different versions of what happens after she takes this down. In every version, she takes both of these items and brings them back onto her bus. In some of the versions of the story, she then discovers that the gun was rigged up to shoot whoever would tear off the sign. Mm -hmm. In other versions, and I think this is where it comes into question where you brought up her own personal vehicle, the majority of the versions of this story is it's not discovered the booby trap anyway until she gets home and she's done with work. And as soon as she discovers this booby trap, she gets in her car and now she's driving off and she's going to report this to the authorities. Well, I also think that maybe that's the reason why people think there was multiple signs was because, like you said, she had to take down two posts. Well, and there's some dramatizations of this story that do show multiple signs. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why they showed that is to 
increase the threat level, some would say till midnight. Michael Scott, the office. The other situation, too, is this was not the first day nor first time. In fact, in years, this has been going on for years where people were posting these nasty signs. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned yesterday, Ron would drive around looking for them. Which, let's see, when I used to teach guitar lessons, we would send a guy out at night once it got dark. And he would put, you know, guitar lessons, call this number, all around Circleville. Because normally, if people, you know, if, if we put them out during the day, they were going to be taken during the day. But if we put them at night, at least the morning traffic would see them. Well, a lot of these signs had to do with her whatever relationship with Gordon Massey, which is not that big of a deal at this point. They're both not married. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Yeah, pro- but it's, it's one of those relationships... Oh, well, you're, as you're together, you can keep rubbing it in their face. That the, the, the letter writer can keep rubbing that, that in their face. See, I told you I was right from the beginning. Yeah, but that's not the issue. The issue is what people, what is being posted is that there's some kind of relationship between Gord Massey and Gillespie's daughter, who at this time would only be 13 years old. So Mary Gillespie is tearing these down not to save her own name nor Gord Massey's name. She's doing it in defense of her own child. To me, it seems like this individual, if, if the letter writer is connected to whoever's putting out these signs, then their their target all along has been the superintendent. It's difficult to say. I don't I don't know how to answer that. Or, or respond to that statement with words I'm, i don't think you're wrong the problem becomes that there are so many people that this thing let's just call it a thing because we don't know what it is we don't know if it's multiple people we don't know if it's one individual Bigfoot. and if it's multiple people we don't know if they know who the others are that are doing this terrible stuff right it seems to be targeting a lot of people from what i can see and yes, it does seem to be that this started with Gordon Massey, but I have some strong opinions on who I think the writer is, and I think we can address that once we get through the events of 1983. Because the way that the story goes per Unsolved Mysteries and the local legend and the story that's repeated over and over and over again for the most part to this day is that they trace this gun Back to Paul Freshour, Paul says, yeah, that's my gun, but it was stolen from my residence. The issue then becomes, well, why didn't you report it stolen? Well, I didn't know it was stolen until now. Right. Okay, well, if that's a good defense, I know that this is not a homicide, that it was an attempted murder, but if a homicide was committed with my gun and a, a, a good defensible excuse is, well, it was stolen, but I never reported it stolen and everybody just went along with it then we all would use that excuse all the time. It's not believable. And then Dwight Radcliffe, the sheriff at the time, sits Paul down. Paul says, hey, I agreed to do this. And he shows me some of the letters in the envelopes that are coming from the Circleville writer and says, you know what? Try to mimic this. Try to write like this. Copy it. And then Sheriff Radcliffe uses this as further evidence that he was not just the person that owned the gun that belonged in the booby trap, but the writer, the letters and the envelopes coming from the Circleville writer matched what was written on the sign of the set booby trap. Mm -hmm. And Paul 
could not be eliminated as that rider. In fact, Radcliffe takes it a step further and says that this is proof that he was the rider. So not only is he the attempted murderer, but he's also the Circleville rider. They take him to trial, and in October, the trial lasts about one week. Paul does not testify on his own behalf, and he is sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison, which is the maximum sentence at that time. Then he gets jammed up even further because he can't get paroled because the letter writer continues to write these letters and send them to businesses, churches, individuals. Mary Gillespie, she gets more. The school board keeps getting more letters. In fact, Paul Freshour himself gets a letter. And we know Unsolved Mysteries gets a letter. Yeah. It's like Oprah. You get a letter. You get a letter. You yeah. get a letter. Look underneath your chair. <laughs> And so Radcliffe tells the warden, hey, you can't let this guy out. He clearly has not learned his lesson. He's still writing these letters. Well, they, you know, they did a, the investigation to see if there was a way, basically, for him to get a letter out. There's, that's easy to do. It's easy to do. Do we, know, do we know what prison he went to? Well, he was in Lima, Ohio. So this would be a maximum security prison at the time. And but but the letters were still coming from Columbus. Yes, which makes it difficult. One, but the other thing too, but doesn't make it impossible. I mean, we have no. But the the tricky thing, Captain, becomes they monitor in these prisons. They monitor the ingoing and outgoing mail. No, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, if the mail was still coming from Columbus, you would all you'd have to do is bribe one of the officers to take the mail. For you, and then that officer might think, "Well, I get to, I get to read the letter beforehand. All he, all he's doing is talking some shit, and I know he's harmless because we have him locked up. I'm just saying it wouldn't be that far fetched to for to have him bribe somebody to, hey, if I write a couple letters, will you drop them off for me? No, and I'm glad you bring that up for a couple of reasons because I'm on your side. I want to say this though. I believe the warden exactly as the warden said in his statement in his letter that I did an investigation and it is my opinion as the warden of this prison that Paul Freshour is not mailing these letters through my prison walls. I believe that statement 100% because they are checking the incoming mail and the outgoing mail. Mm-hmm. And even when the letters continued, the warden said, cool, I'll play along. Paul, you want to keep playing your game? I'll put you and lock you up in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And he kept him in solitary time and time again, three different times. And the letters continued during all those times. But I, again, I'm with you. I've seen Shawshank Redemption. I've read the book, uh, read in there, said, you know what? Whatever you need, I can get for you guys. Mm-hmm. And what did he do? He got him. And I know that's fictional, but let's throw this little wrinkle in there. Paul Freshour at one point in his life, worked as a corrections officer in a prison in the state of Ohio. Not at the Lima prison. He worked at the Ohio Penitentiary, which is in Franklin County. Mm -hmm. He worked that job, I don't know for how many years. I believe it was less than 10. This was after he got out of the military, after he went to college. I always think it's funny when they they get flipped to the other side. (laughs) For so many years, I was the the officer. Now I am the prisoner. So if anybody could figure out how to do it, it would be somebody in Paul's situation, somebody Mm -hmm. who had worked, as you said, both sides, both sides of the bars. Mm -hmm. The other issue, though, also becomes it it doesn't have to be Paul Freshour 
writing these actual letters that continue during this time to be connected to Paul. It could be somebody for him on the outside that doesn't need nor require any information from Paul at all and just keeps sending them on his own or her own to try to make it look like Paul is innocent. Because what did they tell us at trial? What did they tell us in the papers? He was the writer. Not only was he the attempted murderer, but he was the writer. That they're one and the same. So if the letters continue, then maybe they got it wrong with the attempted murder. Right. Let's dig through this attempted murder charge a bit more. Because there is some evidence that magically has lost its way today when this retelling of the story continues. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service 
at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Well, we're back. I didn't go anywhere. Well, you should have. <laughs> Tall cans in the air. Cheers yeah, to everybody. You should have Front and somewhere. back, side to side. Oh, by the way, if you would like to receive some mail from us, make sure you sign up on our mailing list. That's right. That's yeah. right. We will try not to send any booby traps. So here's some issues with Paul's guilt and with his innocent or innocence that we should point out. Mm-hmm. First off, we had several people at his trial that testified as to eyewitnesses of what they saw that day where the sign and the booby trap was set up. Yeah, but we have issues. We always seem to have issues. The issue became a couple of things. One, Paul did not go to work that day. We know he worked in Columbus, so that would have been a really good day for Paul Freshour if, in fact, he was innocent to go to work. Yeah, and that you know, would have been a 20, 30-minute drive for him. The Anheuser-Busch plant is North Columbus. It would have been an hour for him to get to this location. And he worked long days as a quality control officer. He worked 50 hours a week no. up in North Columbus. Yeah, but if he didn't go to work, he's coming from his home in Grove City. That's correct. I'm sorry. I was no. 
I thought you meant if he was at work. But yeah, so it would have been a great alibi had he been at work. Now, he did have an alibi for portions of that day. The question then became, when, in fact, was the sign in the booby trap set up? Because there are other people that say, hey, I saw a tall, sandy-haired man in a yellow El Camino parked right in that general area, and this was before the sign was visible to anyone else. Mm. There were other eyewitnesses, however, that put Paul in the general area of Circleville and Danville around the time that it is believed that the sign and booby trap were set up. So more for him being in the area rather than against. And of course, the damning evidence is that he did not go to work that day. There's also a lot of stuff going on in Paul's life leading up to February of 1983. In 1982, he and his wife, Karen, divorce. And it's not a good one. It's not a clean break. It's not nice and neat for everybody. Well, then why not shoot her? One problem has always been for the case against Paul Freshour as setting the booby trap, attempting to kill his one-time sister-in-law, is that he's this nice, quiet man. He would never do anything like this. However, at the divorce proceedings, it's presented at that trial, at that court case, Paul beat up his wife when he suspected that she was running around on him and he beat her up pretty bad. And we know this because we have the police report. She has a black eye. She received several stitches. And this is not a, he said, she said situation because in the court proceedings, his own attorney tells the court it's okay. Paul never meant to do that. He lost control, but he's gone to counseling since, and he's gone because he is sorry for what he did. That's admitting that he was violent against his own wife. Yeah, piece of shit. They divorce in 1982, and at some point, Paul moves on. He has a girlfriend, which becomes his wife before February of 1983. Paul somehow, even with the violence is awarded the children and the house during the divorce. And Karen goes to live in a trailer at the back of Mary Gillespie's property. There are signs that are being posted in Darbyville and Circleville leading up to the booby trap sign that are now making nasty statements about Karen Freshour, saying that she's a lesbian and naming the woman that she is supposedly involved with, even though she has a boyfriend mm-hmm. and she goes so on you can have a to boyfriend and a girlfriend at the same time. That's true. I mean, I mean, all of the stories we cover, you can have a husband or a wife and a boyfriend and girlfriend at the same time. I'm pointing part of this out though, because there are a lot of people that believe that Karen Freshour could have been the letter writer. Well, I mean, just because there's some nasty signs about her, it's like, you got to take a couple for the team. My, my look when I look at these letters, I mean, just going off. I want to know your opinion. To me, the 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 writing seems a little feminine. Um, possibly that's you're pointing out something that's good that we have not pointed out. That the letters are not identical. No, there's several different styles of writing in the handwritten letters. There's also some that are typed. Some are on postcards. Some are on these little weird looking tag things. 
Mm-hmm. Some are on signs, as we've pointed out. But yeah, it's like even though they're they're using, they're almost like creating their own different fonts. But even the one uh, font where they're using like really boxy letters, it still looks like more more likely that a female would have wrote that than a man. I don't think you, in my opinion, I can't apply gender to any of the writing. Well, that's because you're not an expert, okay? So <laughs> right. once you become an expert in junk science. I'm just, I'm in a room full of experts. I just don't, I happen to be, not be one of them. Mm-hmm. So the the thing here though, Captain, would you agree that? No. <laughs> would you agree that saying that Paul Freshour was not the letter writer does not then make him innocent of the attempted murder charge. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, the the reason why Karen makes sense is because she would have opportunity to get his gun. All they did was uh, basically shave off, like, part of the number. But that would have to mean there'd be some reason why Mary Gillespie's sister wanted her dead. If, in fact, it was actually rigged up in a way that it would work. Right. You know, that's where it, this story gets really complicated. The case does get very complicated because there's about 8,000 different rabbit holes that you could go down. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this case is the people, again, I keep going back to who is central to this story. And it's the Fresh Hours, it's the Gillespie's, it's Gordon Massey, and it's the school board where it all kind of starts. And the victims, if there are real victims, are Ron Gillespie, Mary Gillespie, and at this point, Karen Gillespie. You can say whatever you want to say about Karen Gillespie, and people can think whatever they want to think. I'm telling you, her husband beat her up. We know that to be a fact because we have a police report. It's presented in court proceedings and through his own attorney admits to it. Yeah, so what you're saying is Karen is telling us that Paul— Right? Correct. Paul with the shitty mustache (laughs) and the half mullet. He beat her up. So, again, if, look, maybe she was the letter writer and it was just she was getting kicks, telling people, hey, you're not supposed to be doing this, you're doing this. Maybe she loved her sister but said, hey, you're doing wrong because I love my brother-in-law. He's a good guy and you're cheating on him. Bad for you, right? But then your husband beat you up. Maybe, and let's look, if it happened once. Beats her up in 1982. Right. The letters start in, in 76, early 77. I understand that. Just you, I know, I'm just pointing it out for all involved. Okay. Again, I'm not an expert. I just. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to keep up. You try, you, when you get your certification on the wall, then we'll let you speak. Okay. Follow me on this though. You pointed something out really interesting. Was this booby trap even going to work? It seemed like it would, hypothetically, right? But it didn't. What a great way to frame the son of a bitch that has beat you probably multiple times. You see what I'm saying? You're now done, you're you're out of the relationship. For all you for all we know, he can't let it go. He he might still be harassing her here and there. And she goes, hey, I'm, I'm going to set this trap up with his gun, and he's going to go to, to jail for this. I agree. If Paul Freshour was set up, it had to be somebody extremely close to him, somebody that had access to that gun that 
as he just said, I don't know when it disappeared. Someone stole it from me. That's how that's how inside the person would have to be. Well, if you're the letter writer and I'm right, write us a note. The thing Let is, us though, know that we're right. You're talking to a you're talking to a room full of people, and I don't mean here in the garage. I mean, mm. I don't believe for a second that there was anything short of at least half a dozen people writing these letters. Really? Because why would Karen Freshour? Why would she be the original letter writer? I don't believe the person that started the letter campaign back in 77 was the same person that was still writing the letters in the late 90s. Yeah, if there's hundreds, maybe a thousand of these letters, yeah, you're going to have multiple writers. Because also it'd be so easy, like you hate your job, your boss is a little bit of a cunt muffin, so you're like, hey, I'm going to write him a note, get all my grievances out, get my point across. And they'll just assume it's a part of these other letters. So I'm covering. I'm going to be covering myself up. Well, the issue for me becomes with Karen being the letter writer for the entire campaign. If if she's upset about an affair, why wouldn't she just tell her brother? There's no point in mailing a letter to Gordon Massey. And take it a step further. Yeah, but if you start with that, hey, I know, hey, you stay away. It, it, it's easier to send them a threatening letter, but not say, stay away from so my you, sister. So would you not you, want your brother to, to know? You just want the affair to end? And it's it's pri- maybe it's better he doesn't know? Yeah. yeah. Because where my mind goes is you just tell the if you really care about them, you just tell them, hey, I think this is going on, or I know it's going on because of A, B, and C. The other tricky thing, too, is somebody definitely had some kind of insider knowledge of the the school buses, the high school, the mm-hmm. superintendent, and the employees there. I don't know, unless she's being fed that information from Mary Gillespie, I don't know that Karen would know that information. Mm-hmm. And it's equally difficult to believe that Paul Freshour would know that information. Where I don't think that Paul, I think that Paul was the letter writer for a portion of this story, but I don't think that he was the letter writer when it first started. But that's what I'm saying with so many letters, it's, it's, it really puts law enforcement or any armchair detective at a loss. I mean, you're going to be chasing your tail. We have businesses that we're written to. We're talking about three or four lines sent to them on a, on basically a posted note, right? I think a lot of those are just random people that knew, hey, as long as I go up to Columbus and send it from Columbus, people are going to assume this shit's coming from the Circleville letter writer. Well, and in some cases, they're just simply placed in mailboxes. They weren't mailed at all. Right. The early letters were all coming from Columbus. Mm-hmm. The letters, the majority of the letters that were being sent and received while Paul was in prison, are coming from Columbus. But not all 1,000 are actually mm-hmm. mailed and through the through the system itself. Well, the, but the reason why you wouldn't tell your brother-in-law is that you're, you're... Well, it's your brother. It's not your brother-in-law. If you're Karen. Yes. If you're Karen, then it's your brother. Is you're, you're now taking um, guilt away and and people that are... They're obviously, if they're having this affair, they have guilt because they're obviously not telling people. They don't know exactly what they want to do with their lives. They're kind of using their spouses 
as they continue to have this affair and you're just you're now just creating pain where if you can get to your sister-in-law if you can get to the other guy that's having the affair and you can get one of them to see the light that maybe the affair will just stop he doesn't have to know about it he doesn't have to be in pain about it um and they could just move forward but you end up telling him anyway well, because nobody nobody did anything. See what I'm saying? So you, you kind of gave them the chance, and they didn't, and so... You also can't know that Mary would open the letter addressed to her. You see what I mean? It gets very complicated very quickly when you try to assign a certain person to being the letter writer. No, no, yeah. No, and it, it, it works that way for every single person that you try to apply it to. Not just Karen... It works that way for Paul, for Mary, for Gordon, for uh, a lot of other people involved. And I think the reason why it works out that way is, A, the letter writer constantly contradicts themselves. The threat to Gordon Massey, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to go to the school board. But then you don't give him time to do anything about it. You just go to the school board. Hey, if you don't, Mary, if you don't come out with this affair, I'm going to go to the school board. Well, you've already gone to the school board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you tell the husband, but what's the husband supposed to do? He's not, he's supposed to end the affair. It seems to be the original letter writer was more concerned about ending the affair rather than actual consequences for any of these people. Well, and I actually think that, like I said, there's, there's probably a lot of letters that we've never seen that the public has never seen because nobody came forward and said, Hey, I got this letter talking about this affair I had uh, with so-and-so because they never came forward with that letter. And I think if we had all those early letters, we'd have a better idea of who was who was writing these. But again, the problem with this case is once you get all these letters out there, and like I said, if I think my boss is the biggest you know douche in the world, right, I can write him a letter in this style and, and get away with it. And how many other people in that town decided, well, I can do the same thing. Now, take that same logic and go, in 82, I'm beat up by this little bitch of a man that thinks he can put his hands on women whenever he wants. And uh, I'm tired of his shit. And maybe he's threatening her even afterwards and decides to set him up. It's not impossible. I find I find it difficult there again to believe that Karen would be the letter writer based off of the nasty things that were said about her on the signs. No, no, no. Did you not hear what I said? It has nothing to do with her being the letter writer. It's now opportunity. Oh, some people are questioning whether Paul is the letter writer. Let me set up this scenario using his gun that I stole from him. Right. And make it seem like these signs were set up and it didn't seem like there was a lot of eyewitnesses that saw those signs. There's some reports of, oh yeah, I think I might have saw this, I might have saw this. But but then she collects that evidence and what did she find? A booby trap that does not work for whatever reason and she takes it back and just so happens to be Paul's gun. And what a great way for you know, Karen or possibly Mary and Karen to set up uh, so this son of a bitch goes to jail. See what I'm saying? 
Oh, I agree. Because, because many, many some people son of a bitch that. beat up my sister, and she came to me and said, hey, we're going to, I got this little uh, ruse, because they're not going to put him behind bars. They're not going to protect me. I'm going to protect myself. I could totally see going, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then it's his gun, and if they think he's the writer, this guy goes to jail. I get what you're saying, and many people have thought that. And it's certainly an interesting angle to look at. Many people have said, you know what, maybe Paul is innocent here, and maybe Paul's the actual hero, and Karen is the villain all along that we should have been looking for when we thought Paul was the villain. Well, I mean, Paul's Paul's a villain in my eyes. I mean, you don't, you don't put your hands on women. There's a couple things that get, again, conveniently left out from the story along the way. One, the incident of Paul actually being a violent man on record when people say he's not capable of such horrible things. So the gun itself is lab tested so they can come up with the serial number to trace where it came from. They cha- they trace it to a sale at a pawn shop in Columbus and it's proven that that pawn shop sold the gun to Paul Freshour. Uh-huh. That's not really in question because Paul admits to the sheriff, yes, in fact, that is my gun, but it was stolen, and I don't know when it was stolen. Why didn't you ever report it stolen? Eh, I don't know. Well, because I didn't See, know it was stolen. Yes, that's fair. Right. However, he does say that his home was burglarized. So, I again, I that's where he loses me a little bit. Is there a report of this burglary? It Was there an insurance claim of this burgl- burglary? Those are things that I could not find. If he chose not to report the burglary, why? The other thing that gets lost along the way is when we go back to the writer, and, and when we look at Paul's guilt, again, we've both agreed that whether or whether or not he was the writer at any time during this story has little to do with him actually being guilty. He doesn't have to be the writer and be guilty of this attempted murder. The thing that gets really tricky with this, when you think about how many possible writers there were along the way, is we have a situation where four people readily admit we were receiving letters, Ron and Mary Gillespie, and the four of us took action We took actions into our own hands and decided we are going to send some anonymous letters to the person we think is writing them to us. Right there, we see a chain of events that sets into place multiple writers. Mm -hmm. How many other people received letters and thought they knew who was sending them the letter and anonymously wrote them? And then that person anonymously writes somebody else and then somebody else. And it continues on and on and on. A great This reminds me of another great book, Needful Things, where somebody does something wrong to one person, they assume somebody else did it to them, they wrong that person, and then that person wrongs somebody else, and somebody else, and then somebody else, and the circle and cycle continues, and it grows, and it gets more vicious as it goes. Oh, again, that's the funny thing about where it happened, Circleville. The difficult thing against Paul Freshour is... One, he admitted that with that group of four, that they sent several letters, anonymous letters. Mm -hmm. Later, according to Dwight Radcliffe, Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, Paul Freshour, this is before he was convicted, before his trial, during interrogation, admits to Dwight Radcliffe as to sending 40 to 50 of the 1,000 Circleville writer letters. 
this is magically left from the story as well. Mm-hmm. Paul Freshour, his original statement to the courts against the charges of attempted murder of Mary Gillespie, he pled innocent by reason of insanity on August 8th, 1983. He later changed that to simply innocent. And he decided to fight the charges and lost in court. At the trial, Karen, his wife, who may not be innocent, we don't know. I I can see your point there, Captain, and other people have brought up that scenario as well. But Karen testifies in court that on more than one occasion, she caught Paul with strange letters. One that he had ripped up and tried to flush down a toilet. One that she found stuffed between the mattresses. She thought that Paul was the letter writer. But she also didn't think that he was doing it since 77. I wonder if there's a situation here, Captain, where Paul Freshour went off the rails. Mm. Do we have a situation where his life is spiraling out of control and he uses this already existence of the letter writer and the letters themselves as something easy for him to step into, to take advantage of a situation. He loved Ron Gillespie. There's no doubt about that. That's his own words that I'm using there. He says that Ron Gillespie was his best friend. He's convinced that somebody killed or Ron Gillespie was involved in some type of foul play that led to his death. Is there a chance that... He ultimately believed Mary Gillespie was somehow responsible for the death of his best friend. And then after his nasty divorce and after he is brought into the light and shown to be who he really is, uses this writer as an opportunity to attack his, to further attack his ex-wife by posting nasty signs about her and attack Mary Gillespie posting signs about her and sending nasty letters along the way. David Longberry, who we've mentioned several times in these episodes, he's not without fault here. He's not just another innocent person along the way. He, in the 90s, was accused of raping or sexually assaulting an 11-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. and he went on the run. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find exactly what happened to him or confirmation of such, But the story has always been that he hung himself somewhere in Texas. I happen to wonder, Captain, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know who the writer was. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to say that Paul was 100% guilty Uh or that Ron Gillespie died 100% in a a one-car accident that involved nobody else. But it looks to me to be a situation where Paul was guilty of what he was charged with. And Ron's unfortunate ending was probably just an accident. I also think that there's a good, strong chance David Longberry, who resigned in 1981 and who worked for the school system in 76 and 77, 78, and leading up to 1981, Mm -hmm. knew the inner workings of such. He may have been the writer or one of the writers in the beginning. And I think Paul was probably one of the writers at some point along the way. Maybe in 82, 83, maybe he figured out a way to continue to write them or had someone on the outside. That's the other thing here, too, that I think gets missed. People assume because the letters continued that it couldn't have been Paul. They also assume that he had to have been getting letters out of prison. He doesn't. Somebody could have helped him on the outside with getting no information from Paul at all. 
No help from Paul at all. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Well, when people say, well, he got a letter. I mean, well, if he was the letter writer, he could just go, well, look, guys, I got a letter. <laughs> so I did. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> it's, <laughs> he does this. Hey, guys, I got a letter. I just finished writing it. No, but th- but that's what makes this case so complicated. Like what like what you were saying, is there one writer or multiple writers, and are the writers even aware of each other, or are they all using each other as a pawn to not get, be caught as the main writer? And a lot of times we should point out the light the writer's not committing any actual crime, right? To send somebody a letter saying, "Hey, I know your secrets," that's not a crime. Sounds like a good time. You have this whole situation with this car accident. Was that caused or was it an accident? Was it so that there that becomes a twist? And then you have this whole possible booby trap that was set up. And then how many other little stories that have just been left behind in the past of the Circleville letter writer of other possible wrongdoings happening one of the stories that has been left behind and i would like to highlight it before we wrap up here today captain is that in march of 1992 chief mckean he's the police chief in grove city where paul Freshour one time lived he actually went back there and lived after he got out of prison and he passed away while still living in grove city all those years later But in March of 1992, the police chief of Grove City receives a letter that says that Mary Gillespie is responsible for the letters, but includes this tidbit of information. Whoever killed Ron Gillespie is also the person who killed a woman named Vicki Koch. I agree with all the people out there that say that this mystery is super intriguing. It's super fascinating. What I don't love, and I know that they're pushing a different product We have true crime here in the garage. But what is often said is that the Circleville letter writer is the greatest mystery in the history of the state of Ohio or one of the greatest mysteries in the state of Ohio. I would like to point out, regardless of whatever this letter said, I don't have the exact wording in front of me that was received by the Grove City Police Department, but it did say whoever killed Ron Gillespie also killed Vicki Koch. Vicki Koch, her murder is still unsolved to this day. And she was killed in Pickaway County. And this is from Dave Yost, the Ohio Attorney General's list of unsolved homicides, their database. The details of the case are this. Mm-hmm. On August 14th, 1980, Vicki Koch was reported missing from her residence in Circleville, Ohio. Vicki was last seen by friends on or about August 10th, 1980, after attending an event in Ross County, Ohio. On Friday, August 15th, 1980, her vehicle was found parked approximately five blocks from her residence, unoccupied. Neither residence nor her vehicle revealed any evidence of a struggle or altercation. On September 17th, 1980, a nearly skeletonized body was discovered in an area of Madison County, Ohio. The remains were identified as Vicki Koch through dental records. The cause of death is listed as death due to violence. Again, her case is still unsolved to this very day. And she was a teacher working in that area 
back in 1980 before she went missing. When we highlight mysteries of Ohio, or anywhere for that matter, I think we need to sift through some of the sensationalized and some of the ones that are filled with bright lights and shiny objects and confusing rabbit holes and look to the real cases like that of Vicky Koch. Thank you, our friends, for joining us again for another fascinating case. If you need more True Crime Garage in your earballs, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. That's on Stitcher Premium. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for this week? This week we are recommending a great Ohio true crime book. It's titled Murder and Mayhem in Dayton in the Miami Valley. This features several different true crime stories from the Miami Valley area of Ohio, which has a rich but gruesome and bloody history. So check out Murder and Mayhem in Dayton and the Miami Valley by up-and-coming true crime author Sarah Kushel. Find that great title and others on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. Much love to you guys. See you here in the garage next week. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.